Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the 2022 election and the political dynamics at play as the GOP continues on its path of ideological anti-democracy and Democrats work to register new voters and get out the vote. Clips today are from Democracy Now!, How We Win!, The Tom Hartman Program!, Deconstructed!, and Counterspin!, with an additional members-only clips from The Takeaway!, and Counterspin!, and stay tuned at the end for the listener who explained in a paragraph what it took me 20 minutes to describe in my comments in episode 1520. The midterm elections less than three weeks away will determine the balance of power in Congress, and black voters could play a key role. Black voters helped Democrats flip two Senate seats that gave them control of the Senate in Georgia's 2020 special runoff election. Democratic Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock of Georgia now faces Republican challenger Herschel Walker. This comes as Georgia's Republican Governor Brian Kemp is fighting for re-election against Democrat and voting rights advocate Stacey Abrams in a rematch after he signed into law new restrictions that disproportionately disenfranchise voters of color. Um, it was one of many voter suppression efforts in Republican-led states. In Florida, Republican Governor Ron DeSantis's election police unit—that's right, he has set up an election police unit—has arrested people for voting. Florida law allows formerly incarcerated people to vote unless they were convicted of murder or felony sex offenses. Those arrested say Florida officials encouraged them to vote and didn't know about the exclusion. This is police body cam footage of Tampa resident Tony Patterson and his arresting officer recently obtained by the Tampa Bay Times. Apparently, I, I guess you have a warrant. For what? I'm not it's sure. For voter stuff, man. For voters. It's, it's what it is. It, I think the agents with FDLE talked to you last week about some voter fraud, voter stuff, when you weren't supposed to be voting, maybe. This shit is crazy, man. Y'all put me in jail for something I didn't know nothing about. Why would y'all let me vote if I wasn't, uh, I wasn't able to vote? Talk about your plans in Florida and that video we played in the introduction, astounding story um, of what uh, the governor has done in having arrested, uh, with his election police arresting people who are attempting to vote. They said these uh, men who were in prison and came out that they can register and if they qualify, because they didn't know if they did because they had served time in jail, um, they will be allowed to vote. And then they were handcuffed and arrested for voting. Your response? Well, they were handcuffed and arrested for voting while they had in their hands their voting cards. Now, if you're sent a voting card by your county register, wouldn't you assume that that means you have the right to vote? So the fact that DeSantis, uh, you know, people here call him D. Satan, has decided that he wants to use the and play the race card by having mostly black. Look at who he's arresting. It's not just, you know, uh, whites, because more whites have been affected by these felony disenfranchisement laws than blacks, but he's mainly arresting black people, uh, that he's playing the race card because he wants to be president. It doesn't that say something ill about the, the concept of our democracy, the concept of who we are, that we want a we person who is using race. Because we it worked before, right, with Trump. So they're saying, okay, we'll do it again. Biden makes abortion rights bill a top priority if Democrats strengthen their position in Congress. And uh, when I say strengthen our position in Congress, that means elect a couple of more senators to make Cinema Mansion less relevant and carve out the filibuster so that we can actually pass this stuff. Um, but yeah. a, a, a very important reminder, um, you know, November is coming. There's some people who are who kind of think the 
wave of enthusiasm from volunteers over the repeal of Roe has waned? I don't think so. I think uh, it is, it is, if anything, building. Um, mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree. I think it's a great time to hear Biden say this. I am really glad that he reminded us and all voters to think about how they felt that day that the Supreme Court decision was announced because time, we know this about voters. Time is not our friend. Uh, people have short attention spans. And so it's really important, even though people across the country are really feeling the impact of this, it's really important to talk about it as well. And as we know, and I know we'll talk more about some of the, the polar coaster that has been mm-hmm. happening as well, but the media always wants to make things, keep things interesting. And so there's been a big push to, say, oh, well, we had this big surge about Dobbs, but that's going away. And now it's back on the Republicans turf of inflation. I don't I don't believe that's true. I think that it is a different kind of midterm than we've ever seen. And so the the chance to have a new story that reminds people what is at stake that reminds people this is a real contrast election, where our freedoms are on the ballot and the GOP wants to take all of our freedoms away is a good thing. So I'm really glad Biden did that, brought attention to it, and hope that that those are the kind of stories that we need to keep pushing right now to keep the narrative on the point that has Republicans on defense rather than a narrative that has us on defense. Senator Bernie Sanders is on the line with us. Uh, Senator Sanders, of course, uh, the chair of the Senate Budget Committee, one of the most powerful committees in in all of Congress, two-time U.S. presidential candidate uh, for 11 years every Friday on this program. Senator Sanders, welcome back. Uh, You you wrote a brilliant piece for The Guardian uh, titled, Democrats Shouldn't Focus Only on Abortion in the Midterms. That's a mistake. Can you elaborate? Yeah, I can. Tom, it's great to be with you and keep up uh, the work you're doing. Thank you. Uh, Look, here's the issue. This is in my view, the most important midterm election uh, in our lifetimes. And if people think, you know, no one's running for president, it's not that important, they don't have to vote, uh, they are dead wrong. Uh, This election is about whether we preserve American democracy, whether women have the right uh, to control their own bodies, whether we move aggressively to deal with the existential threat of climate uh, where the working families in this country get a fair shake. That's what this election is about. And what I wrote about is that, yes, of course, we have got to be as vigorous and strong as we can uh, to override the terrible Supreme Court decision uh, on Roe v. Wade. And we have got to make it certain uh, that it is women in this country who control their own bodies and not state government. But in addition to that, What we have also got to do is make it clear that if you are a working class person, if you're making $12, $15 an hour, if you can't afford health care, if you can't afford to send your kid to college, if you can't afford child care, if you're sick and tired of corporate greed, you can't vote for Republicans because they are on the wrong side of all of those issues. And it bothers me that Democrats have not been as vigorous as they should in taking on Republicans on these economic issues. Just one more example. Uh, It is no great secret that Mitch McConnell and other Republicans want to cut Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. In fact, we need to expand Social Security, improve benefits by doing away with, uh, right now, the limitation on taxation uh, for... uh, for Social Security. Right now, you make a million dollars, you pay the same amount as you make $140,000. That is totally absurd. So my point was, Tom, that yes, we've got to make sure that we defend the woman's right to choose, that we fight for American democracy, but I think the way we can win votes is making it clear how reactionary Republicans are uh, on economic issues. Senator, the uh, the right-wing Republicans have been plastering the word freedom all over everything. You know, freedom works, freedom this, freedom that. 
Um, I, I remember Franklin, I mean, I don't remember it literally, but, you know, Franklin Roosevelt uh, famously said, uh, you know, an old judge once said, a necessitous man is not a free man, uh, that you're not free if you're hungry or homeless. Uh, do you want to elaborate on that and how Democrats might be able to take that, that word freedom or the concept and elaborate yeah. on it? Yeah, what Roosevelt talked about, um, and he talked about it in 1944 in the State of the Union address that didn't get a whole lot of publicity because it was in the middle of World War II. But what he said was a very profound statement. He said, yeah, in so many words. He said, yeah, we have a Bill of Rights. We have a Constitution. You have freedom of expression, freedom of speech. You, know, you can vote for whoever you want to vote for, freedom of religion. All of that's very, very important. But are you free right now? If you're working for starvation wages, trying to figure out how you can feed your kids, are you free if you get sick and you can't afford to go to a doctor? What does freedom mean if you're a single mom and you can't afford childcare and you are having to figure out how you keep your job and take care of your kids? Are you free if you are a senior citizen, uh, unable to heat your home in the wintertime? And the truth is right now, Tom, unbelievably, in the richest country in the history of the world, 60% of our people are living paycheck to paycheck. And what that means, it's not just economic anxiety. This expands to emotional anxiety. If you're worried about how you're going to pay your rent next month because your landlord has substantially increased your rent, you can't afford to buy food because food prices are going up, can't afford to fill up your car with gas because gas prices are going up, you're living under tremendous anxiety. And that often translates, by the way, into physical illness. Stress causes illness. So I think what Roosevelt is saying is very profound and important. Freedom is not just the right to vote. Yeah, that is enormously important. Freedom is not just the right to express your point of view. Enormously important. We all defend the Bill of Rights, the Constitution. But we Roosevelt was talking about is a, a, that economic rights are human rights as well, and we've got to fight for those. We have uh, a handful of major corporations that are showing the largest profits in the history of the world. We have the largest producer of oil in the world uh, openly taking the side of, of Vladimir Putin, Saudi Arabia, uh, openly taking Putin's side, and, and it's almost as if, I, you know, I don't know if this is a paranoid fantasy on my part or, or not, that that, you know, Donald Trump or Jared Kushner, who's going to deal with the Saudis, reached out to Mohammed bin Salman and said, hey, let us help us screw the Republicans. Let's jack up gas prices. Reached out to, to the, the CEOs of the biggest oil companies, one of whom was, you know, Trump's secretary of state, Rex Tillerson, and said, um, hey, you know, help us help us really damage the Democrats. We, we need to jack up inflation really hard here. Um, whether I'm, you know, presenting a conspiracy theory that's nuts or not, just the fact that this situation is as fragile as it is and as vulnerable to that kind of manipulation should be something our government should be looking at, is it not? Yes. And, you know, what do they say, Tom? Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean that you're crazy, right? <laughs> yeah, or that they're, out to, they're, they're not out to get you, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, look, and, and, you know, one of the issues uh, that you just touched on, which I think we don't talk enough about, you know, the Republicans talk about inflation, inflation. Well, inflation is a huge issue. We've got to understand what causes inflation. And part of that, indisputably, is the level, the unprecedented level of corporate greed that we are now experiencing. So are gas prices too high? Yeah, they are. Look at the profit margin of ExxonMobil and the other major oil companies, and they're enjoying record-breaking profits. Are food prices too high? Yeah, they are. Take a look at what the major food companies are doing now in terms of their profit levels. Extremely high. Are prescription drug costs too high? Absolutely. Take a look at the pharmaceutical industry and the kind of enormous profits that they are making right now. So I think one of the things that Democrats should be campaigning on is the level of corporate greed that now exists, in my own view, I believe we should initiate a windfall profits tax. Like the Brits uh, just did. Like what? Like the Brits just did. They, they, they just did, did this in Britain. The conservatives. 
conservative government in England imposed that. We would go further. But you've got to tell the corporate world that in this really difficult moment in American history, we've got the war in Ukraine, you've got supply chains that are broken, you've got major labor shortages in parts of the country, that at this particular moment, you know what? You cannot have these outrageous profit margins because you're raising prices to a level that working people can't afford. Everyone on the internet is vying for your attention. And unfortunately, we are no different, except that we only try to earn your attention, never trick you out of it. So if you get value out of this show, then you can help support us just by making sure you know about every new episode we put out so that you can decide whether or not to listen to it. This is a delicate balance because we also discourage distracting interruptions and random dings coming from your devices. That said, nearly every podcast app gives you the option to be notified when a podcast of your choice releases a new episode. We hope that you will turn that option on for Best of the Left, but set the notifications to be delivered quietly so you only see them when you're ready to see them. Thanks for your attention. It is the most precious resource you have, and it is exactly what we need to keep the show going strong. Polls can do three things. They can make people complacent, they can make people depressed, or they can remind people that we have a lot of fucking work to do. And that's how I would look at this New York Times poll. And no one should take any one poll too seriously. But I think if you look at the bulk of the polls, you look at the how where the money's being spent, how the money's being spent, you look at the the messages from the campaigns and the body language of the campaigns. Here's one thing that I think is is absolutely without a doubt is this race has tightened up. It's in t- and it is going to be, it is very, very close in lots of places. And it was always going to be that way. It was never, Republicans are never going to win by a ton. Like the polls look like last year and early this spring, right. Democrats were never going to cruise to victory in these States. Like the polls may have looked this summer. John Fetterman was never winning Pennsylvania by 15 points. <laughs> Raphael Warnock was never winning by five points. The, like that was never going to happen. These races are all happening in states that were decided by a point in 2020 and a point in 2016 and a couple of points in, 20, in 2012. Most of the, the, the Senate will be decided by states where the final margin was less than one half of 1% in 2020. So we have reverted to the inevitable mean. So I, the way I look at this poll, at this poll or any other poll is we can win and we have three weeks to go win. Whether the, what the polls say, whether the polls say we're winning by a little bit or losing by a little bit should not in, change anything that anyone is going to do. It should be a reminder that we have, we have agency here. There is a in, in the country and in the states that are going to decide this, the Senate and the House. There is a progressive, pro-truth, pro-democracy, anti-MAGA majority. And it's we just have to turn them out. And if we turn them out, we will win. If we don't, we will lose. And that that's the math, no matter what Nate Cohn or the needle or some other Nate says to us. <laughs> I've really, uh, like, I should know better. I've, I've worked on enough campaigns to know that at this point, I need to just shut off those models and just keep my head down and do the work. But it's hard not to look at them. But as you said... Yeah. These are all within what uh, we are lovingly calling the margin of effort right now. Right. right. That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Um, speaking of the margin of effort, I know you and the Pod Save America guys all are super busy and, and, and help out with campaigns a lot, mm-hmm. uh, especially as it comes up to GOTV. Uh, where is your focus in these last few weeks? I, I sort of two, a couple different places. Um, you know, obviously focus on the Senate. Um, and those key states there, but very, very interested in trying to help out and draw attention to the down ballot races, particularly the Secretary of State races mm-hmm. uh, all across the country, but in Arizona and Nevada in particular, yeah. they're going to be incredibly close. And you have uh, election deniers on the Republican ticket who have basically run with the promise to uh, keep votes from being counted. And then, you know, we there are House races that are very well within the margin and whether we keep the House or we lose the house by the, we have the ability to keep the house. And if we can, if that happens, that is huge. But if we lose it, there is a a gigantic difference between losing it by a couple of seats and losing it by a ton of seats, a couple of seats. And we have the opportunity to go and get it back in 2020 for, because the, the, the house map now has more seats that Joe Biden won than Trump won. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. And so when it, with presidential year turnout, we can go ahead back. If we lose it by 40 seats, uh, you know, like we did, we like we won it by in 2018 or 64 seats, like Republicans lost it or 63 seats lost it, won it in 2010, then it's going to take us a very, very long time to get it back. So there's we like there everyone asks me like where should I focus my energy? Where should I focus? There is no wrong answer here. Right. We gotta win everywhere. Pick the race you're passionate about, pick the the volunteer event or the phone making that fits with your schedule and uh and dig in. So I was pitching, um, obviously, uh, last week we had um, Senator Cortez Masto on our show, and obviously Nevada is a, a super important uh, race, yep. pivotal to holding the Senate. Um, and uh, I had a great pitch to my wife this morning, um, going mm-hmm. out and canvassing in uh, Las Vegas, and uh, Silk Sonic is doing a residency there too so we could go mm-hmm. well, see go. we could yeah. go see silk sonic and help save democracy uh what a great weekend that would be right yeah absolutely i mean if you can get out to vegas and you can catch it you know canvas door you can't canvas at night so you might as well canvas during the day and catch a show at night. you may as well see anderson pack and uh bruno yeah. mars at night and save yeah. democracy yeah. by day come on yeah it's, it's that it's, it's hard that would be hard to turn down <laughs> um you mentioned uh, all of the MAGA Republican election deniers running all over the country. There's over 300 of them. And um, we know the, res- the whatever the results are, it's going to be really close. Um, I kind of I kind of don't want to go there with this question right now, but I think it's important that we start thinking about this. Um, how do we prepare for the hundreds of little wannabe Trumps refusing to accept the results if they don't win? Well, I, I mean, I, I think actually, um, you know, an ounce of prevention goes a long way or whatever the saying is that we can prevent that from happening right now. Right? We just win these races. And the if we're going to prepare. So I, it's like I'm almost hesitant to get into the view of what 2024 looks like if these folks win, because I'd rather just beat them in 2022. Yeah. But I think no matter what happens, we have to be prepared for the fact that the Republicans can do everything they possibly can to ensure the Republican wins, no matter what the voter says. And we, and I, and the way in which they go about that insurrection is going to be very different than the last time. It is, this is not going to be about the vice president or about like what happens at the Capitol or anything about that. It is what the Republicans realized is the reason they could not overturn the election is because when the votes were counted, Joe Biden was ahead. And so what they're going to do now is not, try to throw and that was so that they tried and failed to do because it's very hard to do is to throw out already counted already certified votes this time they're just going to stop the votes from being counted and so that's going to mean that all of us in this election and 2024 have the opportunity and the responsibility to you know run for office to for, for some of these local positions like recorder of deeds to be poll watchers to right. be advocates and to try to protect the integrity of the vote because they're going to be trying to throw them out. And I am as someone whose first uh, major political experience was working for Al Gore in 2000 and spending, Mm. you know, 37 brutal days in Florida at the end. I know how this works. I know how no matter what the integrity of the election is, if you come out on the bottom side, you almost, you almost know the, the results almost never flip. And so we have to ensure that every single vote gets counted and that's going to require investing and organizing, volunteering to be poll watchers and uh, supporting legal efforts. Yeah, absolutely. Poll watchers, poll workers, like there's extreme intimidation. And uh, as we all know, uh, poll workers tend to be older and, um, and so younger people need to step up and, and, and take on that role. Um, And, and yeah, it would be nice to, uh, It'd be nice to overwhelmingly win and, and you know, uh, make it harder for them to cast out on it. But uh, I, th- yeah. I think it is going to be close. And when we look especially at, at um, House of Representatives, it's going to come down to a couple of seats. It's, you know, yeah. it's really every seat's going to make a lot of difference. So that's kind of dark. And the other thing, um, we're going to have some close races that uh, will have a legitimate cause to call for a recount and stuff as well. Um, and that's going to this it's going to be a little messy. So, yes, let's uh, let's get out there and do everything we can to make sure that it's a clear victory. When you turn on the television right now, you 
cannot escape the advertising. Some of this is outside money. Like, I think there's, there's been a huge ad buy by Carl Rove's guys to say, if you care about inflation, you need to vote for, for Walker because inflation is, is bad. And hey, Warnock voted for checks for people who are in jail, like the, like the bomber in Boston. And what are Warnock's ads? Uh, Warnock's ads, and he's actually starting to sign his name on some of this stuff, so it's not outside money. Um, but basically, Walker is a liar, and Walker is insane. Mm-hmm. Walker is violent. Walker can't count his kids. Walker threatened to kill his wife. Walker's uh, not like he lies about like charitable stuff. Uh, just like lies, 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 lies. Walker cannot be trusted. I, I think they're penetrating. Walker's response to that seems to have been, hey, we're not supposed to be a, a pastor. What happened to, you know, grace and forgiveness and redemption? Uh, how is that? How is that working? There's a reason why there's a 10 point gap between Abrams and, and Warnock in the polls. And that's the measure of how many people are actually buying that line. I mean, look, the question everybody in the country's got is why would anybody vote for Herschel Walker knowing what we know now? Never mind what everybody else is looking like. Georgia, where you're inundated with this stuff, why would anybody vote for him? And the answer is actually pretty simple. He, like, his stupidity is a feature, not a bug. He is a guaranteed, I will push the R button when it lights up Mm -hmm. senator who will not innovate because he's not smart enough. Like, he may do crazy, stupid things. He may say crazy and stupid things, but he is the most reliable Republican vote that we could possibly have. And that's a good thing. And I'll vote for him. That's it. Like that's all they don't care about any of this stuff. All the moral questions, Republicans are not moral moral actors when it comes to voting. It's simply a matter of interest. Which I could even I could defend, you know, from a kind of moral perspective. In other words, you know, you're voting for to take their side of this question. You're voting for a, a party and a policy rather than rather than endorsing kind of the character of of a person if you know from their perspective if he goes in and and presses the r button and i think you know democrats in a, a lot of races they're voting for the democrat and they're vo- they're voting for democratic policy that person's going to go in and they're going to press press that button and they don't want to you know they're, they're not going to you know they wouldn't they wouldn't switch and vote for Herschel Walker because some damaging information came out about Warnock, Mo- the, the vast majority of them wouldn't. But I'm curious how, what, what your guess is of what percentage of Republicans that is and how many people are there still in our politics who are still taking character into account uh, when they are making these decisions. Used to be huge, 70s, 80s, like you, you would, you'd lose by 30, 40 points in, in a race like yeah. this if you're Herschel Walker. Yep. That, I'm curious where we're at now on that. So, my best guess is it's like the, the that measure is the gap between Abrams and about five to ten. Five to ten. I think that's who's left. And here's where I'm going with this. So during the primaries, and this is important. Like the Republicans had the highest primary turnout this year, basically ever. Both on like uh, I mean, both so did the Democrats. Like voters are activated. I think the the era of relatively low turnout primaries and general elections in Georgia is over. Too much money has been spent getting people registered to vote and like targeting them. Herschel Walker won something over 800,000 primary votes. It was about 60, 70% of the, of the primary electorate. And it's twice as many as anybody else in modern history has won in a primary contested or not in Georgia for a Senate race. That's going to be about half, maybe a little less than half of the Republican voters who turn out for the general election, which is to say half of Republican voters are perfectly prepared to pick crazy. And honestly, it's because I think that they're so disenchanted with actual politics that putting a thumb in the eye of the political machine, even if they lose, is a better and proper expression of their politics 
than it is winning and trying to govern well. Speaking of governing well, how's the Georgia war over actual voting and counting the votes going? So the, the one question right now is going to be about challenges to voter registration. Local judges and local election boards are doing a pretty good job right now of knocking those challenges down. Virtually all of them are being thrown out. Uh, but there is a deliberate and concerted effort by like conservative, hard right, third party actors. It's not the state GOP. It's groups like True the Vote out of Texas. And when I look at who's staffing that stuff here, it's MAGA. It's the worst kind of grifter alt-right. But they're showing up to elections boards all over the state. And it's just rolling dice. They're looking for election boards with a a MAGA majority on it who, who are willing to subvert the law. To his credit, Brian Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, is doing a very good job, and so is his staff, in beating back this, the most spurious of these, these claims that people are being registered properly. Audiobooks may have started out as an accommodation for the blind, but of course now millions more benefit from the ease and convenience of audiobooks, and you may not need me to convince you about audiobooks, but I do want to convince you to switch and start getting your books from Libro. By far, the best way to purchase audiobooks is by subscribing to an audiobook club for a flat fee to get one book credit each month, plus a discount on any other purchases. And this deal may sound familiar, as the audiobook arm of the big box store in the sky offers just such a plan, but while they are trying to squash the little guy, Libro is explicitly fighting for the independent booksellers. For just one example, Amazon works to sign exclusivity deals to lock up books from big-name authors to their platform, which prevents indies and even libraries from having a chance to compete. I mean, competing with other businesses is one thing, but keeping books out of the grasp of libraries is downright unethical. On the other hand, Libro is a special purpose corporation designed to share their profits directly with indie booksellers in partnership with Bookshop.org. So it couldn't be more clear. Make the switch and join Libro through our link to let them know we sent you. Go to bestoftheleft.com slash L-I-B-R-O. That's bestoftheleft.com slash Libro. And of course, there's a link in the show notes for your convenience. Barbara Arnwine, your hashtag is 10 million more black votes. How are you doing this? Oh, we're doing it in two ways. One is we're registering new voters. There's something like 6 million unregistered African-American voters in this country. And we're also saying to those who are registered, 35% who don't vote, that you've got to show up and show out every election. Don't only vote presidential. Vote in the midterms. It's so critical. Vote the whole ballot. Don't only focus on the top positions. But well, no matter what you do, vote. No matter what you do, make sure you're registered. No matter what you do, vote. And can you talk, Kimberly Crenshaw, about how you're linking these two issues, the banned book tour uh, from freedom writers to freedom readers, and why that's so critical when we're talking about voter turnout and voter registration? Well, Amy, it's it's no secret that our democracy is in crises. The efforts to suppress black voting, the efforts to gerrymander districts, this is all part of a democracy that's in deep trouble. But what a lot of people don't realize is that the same people who are trying to gerrymander our districts are trying to gerrymander our history. The same people who want to change the outcomes of elections want to change the story of, of us, the, the material, the books, 
that tell the full story about America. So we've decided that because there is no daylight between uh, uh, racial justice and a fully multiracial democracy, we were going to join this tour to provide the information, the books that those who are anti-Democrats don't want us to know. So we're passing out 6,000 books, titles that have been banned in many of the states that we're in, ranging from the autobiography of Ruby Bridges, the six-year-old who integrated schools in New Orleans, to classics like Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye um, or Ta-Nehisi Coates' Between the World and Me. People need to understand what is behind this effort to ban what they call critical race theory. What they're essentially doing is banning the telling of our history and its contemporary consequences. We think when voters know exactly what they're trying to do, they will show up. And as Barbara said, they will show out. <laughs> and so can you talk about the response? I mean, uh, you're right now actually in Jekyll Island, Georgia, headed to Jacksonville. Georgia is, to say the least, all eyes are on this state. When you have this race between um, Herschel Walker uh, and Reverend Raphael Warnock, Reverend Raphael Warnock just won uh, two years ago, but now will run for a full Senate term. Um, this, all of the attention on this. Uh, can you talk, Barbara Arnwine, about the significance of this race and some of the other ones that you're tracking? Well, obviously, African-American voters are key to all these races because, and it's, you know, we're nonpartisan and we believe that if African-Americans vote, they'll vote correctly because they're going to vote what's in the best interest, not only of their community, but the entire nation. That's one thing we know about African-American voters. They think broadly, especially African-American women voters have a real sense of social justice for all. So it's really important to mobilize this block. And what we're seeing already in Georgia is an incredible, unprecedented, historic turnout of African-American voters. They are 37 percent of the current early voting percentages. That's a, an increase significantly from being 29 percent in the 2018 midterm elections. So African-Americans are hearing us. We've been going to communities that have the lowest voter turnout and saying your vote matters. Don't it doesn't matter if all the candidates don't come to see you because they don't consider you high propensity voters. We consider you the most important voters. Register, vote. So yesterday we did our votercade and we went through some of the poorest most depressed areas in Brunswick, you should have seen the people. This is like what we've been seeing everywhere. They came out, they were clapping, they were giving the power fists, they were yelling, they were screaming, they were so excited that somebody considered them important. Somebody was coming directly to them and saying, vote, it matters. It was just beautiful. That is the experience we've had in Richmond, where we were on motorcycles driving through the city uh, with the uh, Buffalo soldiers and, uh, you know, long six block long, uh, you know, motorcade. Uh, it's been amazing. When people see the John Lewis buses, they honk on the freeways at us. They honk as we roll because people get the message. They're so happy to see somebody saying vote in a positive way, not about Canada. It's just about the fact that as Americans and as the fact that we care and love our democracy, that it demands that we participate, that we vote. Kimberly Crenshaw, you are in Georgia. That other key race is the rematch between the longtime voting rights activist Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp, the governor for the governorship of Georgia. Um, the significance of this race, and you're visiting these sites of white supremacist terror from the Mother Emanuel right. Church in Charleston, South Carolina, um, to talk about the places that you have been. Yes, we 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 visited um a Wilmington uh which is uh the site of a racial 
uh, coup uh, in 1898. And, and one of the reasons that was just so significant to in us, North Carolina. Uh, the African-American Policy Forum, uh, yes, uh, w- was that, you know, when we had the January 6th attempted coup, there were a lot of pundits, including our, our president, who said, this is not who we are. And it is evidence of the fact that when our history has been erased, we don't know that we're heading in the same direction. In fact, violent coups are exactly who we've been. Um, but when we went to Wilmington and looked at the site where the coup began, where a newspaper was burned to the ground and countless numbers of African-Americans were killed and a duly elected biracial government was deposed— there's no marker there. There's no placard. There's no, this is what happened. And that same sentiment, that erasure of our history is what is behind these book bans and behind the effort uh, to challenge uh, the 1619 Project. It is, in fact, an effort to make racism unspeakable. And our position has been that when racism is unspeakable, then democracy, a full multiracial democracy is unachievable. There is is no daylight between the two, even though when people think and talk about, is our country going to the edge? Can it happen here? A lot of people say it can't, but that's just telling us that they don't realize that black history and American history are one and the same. It has happened here, and unless we understand its le- legacy and its implication today, it's on the way of happening here again, and that's what we cannot allow to happen. We've seen uh, a lot of increased engagement by volunteers, certainly um, positive polls for Democrats lately, uh, an increase in voter registration, especially by women since Roe was overturned. Um, so there's a lot of momentum, positive momentum for Democrats. Uh, there is still a lot to overcome. Um, you've been working on, you, you mentioned your your family facing voter suppression uh, as, as one of the impetuses for you to get involved in civics to begin with. Voter suppression efforts by Republicans have ramped up. It's making it harder for some citizens, of course, mostly black and brown Americans to register and vote. Um, how do we support our citizens and ensure that everyone has equal and unfettered access to the ballot right now. Um, 2020 was a challenge. It's going to be even harder than that uh, in 20 in the midterms in November for people to vote. I think, um, yeah, on the heels of historic turnout in the presidential election, where we saw the highest turnout in this country that we've seen in a hundred years, right. when we should have been celebrating this big achievement of democracy. Instead, we saw voter suppression bills crisscross the nation. Um, and we saw many states pass voter suppression bills that will make it, um, you know, challenging for programs like ours to get people from that registration moment all the way to the ballot box. Um, and I think that we have to recognize in this country now, we have two types of people, like take it out of the partisan lens. We have um, people who believe in a healthy and thriving democracy, and people who believe in some other style of government that is not a, a democracy where everyone can't have their voice heard. And I'll, call I think it, that, I'll call it fascism, but you're, I, <laughs> you know, you may not <laughs> be able to do that, but I will. <laughs> so, so I think, you know, I think the, the way to counter that is to continue to show up, to show up um, the presidential cycle, the midterm cycle. Usually there's 15% drop off in midterms. I don't mm-hmm. think we're going to see that this election cycle. I think the American public is awake and the only way um, that we can keep you know, keep the momentum and keep a healthy democracy is to make sure that we're all doing our part. Wake up every day thinking, what can I build, create, or do? How do I, who can I contact to make sure that they're registered today on National Voter Registration Day? How do I make sure that I have my vote plan together um, for how to, you know, participate? In states that have passed these laws, you really want to make sure that you have a plan to, you know, I live in Indianapolis, Indiana, for instance, and we are um, not a great state when it comes to voting. And so my team saw me stand in seven to eight hour lines Mm. um, as the head of vote.org at my local polling location. And like many Americans, um, I had to go back to work. I couldn't just stand there every single, you know, uh, for all the seven hours. And so, um, but luckily I had made a plan to vote early 
So I went out there days in advance. Um, and when I couldn't vote because the lines were too long, I went back home, I went back to work. And then I showed up the next day, hoping um, that maybe the line would be a little shorter the next day. It took me three days until I had the opportunity to vote. But if I had just shown up on election day, then um, the chances of me getting voter suppressed uh, in real time would have you know, been greater. So yeah. I think that, um, and not getting to, not actually getting to cast my ballot would have been greater because you know that, that would have been it. So I think that for a lot of people out there, you just have to register them. You have to encourage everyone you know to know the laws in their state, go to vote.org, check out when you can start early voting, look to see if you can vote by mail, um, depending on the state that you live in. Um, and then think about what you could do. Talk to your employer about giving paid time off to vote to everyone um, uh, and signing up for our electionday.org program. Um, you know, I think I think all of us have a role to play. Like, like we said earlier, everybody is an influencer. Um, so making sure that you really take on that responsibility of being the vote captain for your community, your block, your neighborhood, making sure everybody has the information that they need. I think enthusiasm is the only way we keep um, a healthy democracy. Volunteering to go to polls and work as a poll worker is really important um, so that we can keep those polling locations open and the people who need um, need the, that kind of access have it. So I think those those are the things we can do, but I think we all just have to realize that it's protecting our democracy. It's going to take, it'll never feel, everything you do won't feel like enough, mm. but all of it is important. And so we're all going to have to really um, you know, lean into the moment and think about uh, think about some of the things that I just named and make sure that we're doing them. We have a journalism that says that when it comes to elections, the job is to say what politicians are saying and maybe their strategy for saying it. But the coverage is candidate A versus candidate B. And if they don't mention something, well, then we're not going to talk about it, right? Because neither of the big party candidates mentioned it. And I feel like we've come to expect that for election coverage. And as you're just pointing out, it's such a narrow definition of what this opportunity for reporting could look like in terms of what we talk about. And, you know, Matt Gertz from Media Matters was just pointing out that, you know, Republicans have this not at all veiled plan to gut Social Security and Medicare if they win Congress. This is something that people care deeply about that affects virtually everyone in the country. This is an important story. But if candidates don't talk about it, then reporters aren't going to talk about it because it didn't come out of a candidate's mouth. And it's such a it's such a narrow understanding of what electoral politics mean and the opportunity for journalism that's offered by elections. There are huge issues that are going undiscussed for the most part in the, the campaign and in the the campaign coverage. Things that affect everybody vitally, but but neither party sees them as as like political winners. And therefore, they don't get talked about. The COVID pandemic is one such issue. Neither party is making it a big part of their campaign, despite the fact that this is a, an ongoing pandemic that has killed a million Americans, uh, continues to kill Americans, it shows no sign of going away. And there's neither a, a strategy being advanced by the party in power or a, a strategy suggested by the, the opposition party to deal with this. Um, it's just not being talked about. Another issue that is getting weirdly little discussion in the campaign journalism is the Ukraine war, which the United States is, is putting vast resources into this. It's, it's basically a, a proxy war with the other major nuclear superpower on Earth with the possibility of nuclear war being discussed in in kind of bizarrely casual terms in uh, the foreign policy opinion press. What are we doing to prevent uh, nuclear war from happening? That's not an issue that either party is, is really focusing on. Well, I, I wanted to say that I think listeners understand that there are always issues in play in an election, but at this point, we're not talking about just issues, as life-changing as they may be. We're talking about the process itself. We're talking about whether or not 
it matters when you go to vote, whether you have some say in how politicians treat your bodily autonomy, whether you have some say in how politicians vote on a possibility of nuclear war or the use of, I think it's now $16 billion or something that the White House has spent on the Ukraine war, whether or not we have a process that allows us to have a say in what's being done in our name, that's what's on the ballot. There's a lot of talk about the the January 6th insurrection. It's important to keep in mind what was going on there. That was an attempt to stop the the House from certifying the 2020 presidential election. Uh, We're now going to be choosing the House of Representatives that will preside over the 2024 uh, presidential election. And the Republican ideology now is that the Republican Party should have blocked the certification of the 2020 election and declared victory for Donald Trump because of a sort of faith-based understanding that that he was the the rightful president and should have been named so. So that is what it, we're putting the pieces in place for that to be relitigated in 2024. And that is, I would say, the, the most important thing at stake in the 2022 midterms. And when you think about January 6th, And you think about the way that when we were covering the coverage at the time, there was this sense like, wow, media are finally getting a little bit of a spine. And they're finally starting to call a spade a spade. And they're finally starting to really, you know, call out lies and and things like that. And I think what you're seeing, definitely seeing in recent months, that reverting back to the both sides of them. And I think that really, you know, when Janine, you're asking this question of why you think about what was happening in the Republican Party around January 6th, where there was a real schism and there, you know, a lot of the leadership, you know, the non-Trump leadership was saying, this is not okay. We can't do this. And then the momentum swung back towards Trump. And that suddenly became the mainstream of the party. And once that became the mainstream of the party, then with corporate media's insistence on giving credence to reporting both sides, like the mainstream of the Democratic Party, the mainstream of the Republican Party, when the mainstream of the Republican Party became election denialists, it became virtually impossible for the media to continue to call them out forcefully in the way that they had just begun to do around January 6th. Well, let me ask you about another aspect. There's so many so many things to keep your eyes on, and yet money is always one of them. There was a quote in The Guardian from Chi Sun Lee from the Brennan Center, also, I would note, a long-ago Counterspin co-host. But uh, Lee said that it does seem to be getting worse, that outside spending in this federal midterm cycle is more than double the last midterm cycle. Since Citizens United... Just 12 mega donors, eight of them billionaires, have paid $1 out of every 13 spent in federal elections. And now we're seeing a troubling new trend that some of the mega donors are sponsoring campaigns that attack the fundamentals of democracy itself. There's just a way, uh, you know, for both of you that corporate media are just not going to talk about money and the influence of corporate money and power in elections. It's always like, as if suddenly when we're talking about elections, it's the school board and the posters and and marches and, and, you know, ballot boxes. And the idea that donors have power is a story, but it's a separate story. You should always keep in mind when you're especially watching broadcast coverage or TV coverage of the elections, that elections are a huge, huge profit center for TV news. The inflow of money to buy round-the-clock propaganda in support of one candidate or, or another, that money is going straight into the coffers of the, the corporations that own the TV news programs. And so they have no interest in turning that spigot off. It would be a a financial disaster for them if there was some way found to keep mega donors from pouring money into the the political process. I would also like to point out that there are independent news outlets that are doing a really great job of 
digging up some of this information about about the dark money donations, both within the Democratic and the Republican parties. The levers, one of them, that is one of the purposes of independent media. I mean, that should be the purpose of all media, of course, but that's one way in which independent media really do the job that media should be doing of following the money and holding power to account. We've just heard clips today starting with Democracy Now! discussing the Florida Election Intimidation Police Force, How We Win looked at the energy generated from the overturning of Roe, Tom Hartman spoke with Bernie Sanders about the need for an economic message for the election, How We Win looked at the election from the campaigners and strategists' perspective, Deconstructed discussed how hyperpartisanship has made the morality of individual candidates a non-issue, Democracy Now! explored campaigns to register and educate black voters about racism in politics, How We Win explained the importance of targeting youth voters, and Counterspin discussed the nature of mainstream reporting during election cycles. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard bonus clips from The Takeaway, which dove into the effort to politicize crime against Democrats. We'll see people try to blame criminal justice reform, uh, as Rena said, or, quote, progressive prosecutors. And, and every time these explanations are, are advanced, they're both wrong and they distract us from having these tough conversations about what sort of solutions we need and what sort of investments we need to make to build an enduring and legitimate form of public safety that is uh, that works for everybody. And Counterspend further explored the eternal tendency of mainstream media to find the middle point between two parties. I liken it to trying to report on geography without acknowledging that the world is round you know if you wanted to to have geography coverage that would not turn off flat earthers so you you sort of describe australia as being on the other side of the world according to to some people to hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And now, we'll hear from you. Hello, Jay. This is V from Central... New York. I know it's been a long time since I've called in. Unfortunately, I kind of lost track of the show for a couple of months as uh, work was pulling me a little bit um, harder than usual. But recently, I've been catching up on past episodes, and uh, I wanted to call in about episode 1516. And um, I think that it is a great time to speak about it. For those of you who do not know, it was the show on the GOP-appointed judges, the attempt to take over the judiciary. As we move towards this coming up midterm election, I want to remind you and many of your longtime listeners about a call that I placed, I believe it was before the midterms of 2018 or possibly right after and I made the statement that progressives had to be ready and willing to fight a prolonged battle against these forces for 10 well I believe I said at the time three to five election cycles possibly even six using two-year increments as a cycle meaning we had to be engaged for not only the midterms, but also the national elections so that we could move this country in another direction. Unfortunately, many people did not take heed to that. Fortunately, many did. While I am optimistic that this election will show much improvement over the last four years, I am not 100% confident on the outcome. But I will say this. For those of you who despair that this election may not go as you want it to, 
do not despair because the the changing winds are upon us even though this election may not come out the way you want it do not give up do not give up people often forget dr king had his greatest failure albany georgia before he bounced back and had one of his greatest accomplishments that is where we're at right now i am listening to a lot of podcasts and people talking on the streets and the one thing that conservatives seem to understand is generationally they have lost the argument they have lost every argument generationally it may not show up in the polls yet it may not show up in the elections yet but they know they are beaten and all research suggests that if they don't do what they're doing now after 2024 they won't have a chance to do it so stay strong keep your head in this and move forward thank you jay for the content you've done great work these years my man keep it up peace First off, thanks to V for that message. We always love hearing from him. And now I have one more quick listener message to share. But first, a refresher. Before vacation, so a week and a half ago or something, back on episode 1520, I described my experience watching season three of Star Trek Discovery, which introduced a trans character and a non-binary character who were in a teen romance together. I explained that it didn't make me angry the way it did for some people, but I did have some kind of visceral reaction to it that I had to sit with and contemplate for a while before I understood it. Basically, I concluded that these characters being simply different in a subtle but noticeable way from almost every other television character in history, particularly regular network television, caught my attention in a way that was a bit distracting and triggered mild discomfort. And I explained that this isn't the kind of discomfort that's caused by bigotry, but is rather the kind of natural discomfort with something new that can lead to bigotry. For me, there was a slight discomfort because it was literally unusual, but that discomfort went away over time, just as everything is new until it isn't new anymore and becomes standard and boring. My conclusion was that this is the real point of representation in media, not just to make the marginalized feel represented, but to literally normalize more kinds of people to the general public. People of more colors, shapes, sizes, gender identities, and sexualities need to be represented in media so that viewers can be made to feel temporarily uncomfortable, not because we enjoy causing discomfort, but because it is through that process that a new comfort can emerge in which a much wider range of people can all be considered fully human and normal. So I said all of that. It took me almost 20 minutes to get around to a point, and I was clearly still struggling with what exactly it was I was trying to say by the end. But then afterward, Wendy wrote in and explained it in just a couple of paragraphs. Hi, Jay. This is Wendy. In the last bit where you talked about the neurology behind discomfort and normalization, you basically scientifically defined doing the work. When marginalized people speak to their allies and accomplices about how to do the work, it's us telling our people to just get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Marginalized folk live in discomfort from the jump because of society's oppression. So we want our people to get in on that so they can then, in turn, have uncomfortable conversations in their other circles and continue the chain of discomfort until those conversations are no longer uncomfortable. Like you explained, this human phenomenon can be used in different ways. The right-wing media network and their corporate funders are doing the work of normalizing hate. So we have to do the work of having uncomfortable conversations with our loved ones so they can do the same with their other loved ones. It sounds easy, but we all know how difficult it can be to have these conversations in safe ways. Thank you for the work you do. Ah, uh, yes. Doing the work. I remember that now. Honestly, I got so comfortable with being uncomfortable years ago that I haven't had to go through that process in a while. I started diving deeply into race and racism around 2011, and learning about trans folks came just a couple of years after that. And there was discomfort during both of those learning periods. 
but I kind of thought I was done with all that. And that's why it took me by surprise. I was like, what is this feeling? I haven't felt uncomfortable experiencing or talking about race or gender in years. So having a new opportunity to go through those steps again was honestly kind of refreshing. It was also a reminder of what it's like for most people who are coming to these concepts for the first time and who think that their personal feelings of discomfort are an indication that something about the world has gone wrong as opposed to there just being something new to them that they need to learn to get comfortable with. I felt that twinge of discomfort, which was probably very mild by comparison, and thought, wait, is this what it's like to be a normal person? No wonder they're so angry all the time. So we need to continue doing the work, as Wendy described, and have those difficult and uplifting conversations. Be ruthless on systems, but easy on people. That discomfort people have with the relatively new discussions about gender don't stem from bigotry. They stem from our internal systems of pattern recognition and our lifelong developed sense of normalcy. So it's our job to not shame people for the unavoidable discomfort they feel when experiencing something new. But we do need to make sure that discomfort develops into acceptance and then comfort rather than being allowed to metastasize into bigotry. So thanks, Wendy, for that message. It really helped clarify, just brought my miasma of thoughts into a finer point that uh, can be said in a sentence. That was very much needed. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofaleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Brian, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and and a bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcasts app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. And if you want to continue the discussion, join our Best of Left Discord community to talk about the show or the news or other shows or anything you like. Links to join are in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.